The impeachment trial of Ken Paxton ends with him being cleared on all charges. This is good, and now it's over. And Ken Paxton is the Attorney General of the state of Texas. We look at the key moments leading up to the decision. We did our duty to bring the evidence into the sunlight through this impeachment process. And how the trial could have a lasting impact as lawmakers move forward at the Capitol. Produced from the Capitol in Austin and airing statewide, this is the award-winning State of Texas. Hello and thank you for joining us. I'm Josh Hinkle. Ken Paxton is back on the job. The Attorney General has been reinstated after being cleared of all charges in his impeachment trial. Paxton released a statement moments after the decision. He said, quote, the truth prevailed, adding, now that this shameful process is over, my work to defend our constitutional rights will prevail. The decision comes after two weeks of testimony and a day of deliberation. Ryan Chandler has a closer look at the historic decision. A historic trial at the Texas Capitol, ending by placing us exactly where we were before it began. Texas Attorney General Ken Paxton will return to his post after the jury returned an acquittal on all charges they considered. Paxton's defense team secured not just the 10 votes they needed to avoid conviction, but a pure majority of senators. Most of the articles failing 14 to 16, with only two Republicans voting to convict. Kelly Hancock of North Texas and Robert Nichols of Jacksonville. After the jury delivered their vindication of Paxton, the presiding judge, Dan Patrick, delivered a scathing rebuke of the House managers who brought the charges. The speaker and his team rammed through the first impeachment of a statewide official in Texas in over 100 years while paying no attention to the precedent that the House set in every other impeachment. Millions of taxpayer dollars have been wasted on this impeachment. Meanwhile, Democrats worry that outside influence and political pressure tilted the scales for Paxton. There was a lot, an enormous amount of pressure being put on some of my colleagues, whether it was on social media or they were getting um, a lot of text messages. I know because I was sitting next to some of them and they just couldn't believe how much people were applying uh, pressure. So it's, uh, it's unfortunate, but like I said, this is the new normal now in the Republican Party. We've lowered the bar. We've lowered the bar of what's acceptable conduct for public officials in the state of Texas. Now, this is not the end of Ken Paxton's legal drama. He still faces a criminal trial in Harris County for federal felony indictments relating to previous securities fraud charges. New developments in that coming next month. Until then, he's expected to return to the office very soon. Following the acquittal, we heard Lieutenant Governor Dan Patrick speak out in the chamber, largely against the House for what he and other Republicans see as rushing the impeachment process through. Joining us now, our own team covering the impeachment process nonstop, Ryan Chandler, Monica Madden, and Will Dupree. Welcome, all of you. Great job, by the way. A lot of coverage, I know, so we've got a lot to dive through. Thank you, Josh. Oh, yes. <laughs> so the Lieutenant Governor, Ryan, called for legislation to amend the state constitution to change the process to require people to give testimony under oath and to allow the target of the impeachment time to talk to witnesses, giving members a minimum of two weeks to review evidence before voting. He said the impeachment yeah. could have been avoided if those steps had happened. What do you think? This was a striking moment, Josh, because it was notable to watch a man who, for the last two weeks, had been an impartial juror weighing uh, objections and, and rules of evidence over this quasi-judicial process 
to then take his his uh, judicial cap off and show what presumably were his thoughts about this process throughout the entire time. He uh, railed against House prosecutors for bringing a process that he saw was uh, rushed and improper. And in turn, this is just going to sour the relationship that he has with Speaker Dade Phelan and with the lower chamber even more. In fact, we saw Phelan put out a statement um, really criticizing Patrick for saying these words on his dais as a, a kind of judge saying that the inescapable conclusion, these are these are Phelan's words, were that this process was rigged from the start and that it, quote, robbed the uh, people of Texas of justice. Yeah, and I do want to get back to that a little bit more, but with what Patrick was saying, he's also calling for a complete audit of how much taxpayer money was spent on this process from both the House and the Senate side. And Monica, we've heard uh, other lawmakers calling for similar action. Yeah, it's been interesting the issue of money throughout this entire process. We know that the prosecutors were being paid $500 an hour. I don't know if that is just for the lead counsel or if that includes their subsequent staff, but that's some numbers we already have on the table. I spoke with Dan Cogdell during a press conference uh, right after the verdict with lots of other reporters and asked who is paying your bill and how are you getting paid because that was something that has been up for debate throughout this process. And he said affirmatively it's not taxpayer dollars. The state is not paying for Paxton's legal defense team, but they kind of left it up in the open of whether or not it's coming from campaign dollars or Paxton, his personal finances. So they said that that stuff will be coming out soon. But as I mentioned before, the issue of money has been certainly something that a lot of us have been talking about throughout the trial. As we know, Lieutenant Governor Patrick did take $3 million from Defend Texas Liberty before this trial started. That was a conservative PAC that supports Paxton. So money has been an issue here from the beginning. Now, beyond the calls for an audit into some of this money, at least one lawmaker, Representative Brian Harrison, has already called for Speaker Dade Phelan to step down. Will, remind us exactly what part of this controversial backstory does the Speaker have when it comes to the impeachment? As Ryan noted, uh, the exact statement from Speaker Phelan was, quote, the outcome appears to have been orchestrated from the start, cheating the people mm -hmm. of Texas of justice. Those were the Speaker's words about what Lieutenant Governor Dan Patrick said at the conclusion of this trial, uh, Speaker Phelan also did not say anything about whether he planned to step down at all. In fact, he stood by what the House impeachment managers laid out in their case, saying that he fully supported it. Now, we have to think about, though, what's going to be coming next. We anticipate a, another special session coming up in perhaps a couple of weeks even. This is going to put these three leaders all together, Lieutenant Governor Dan Patrick, Speaker uh, Dade Phelan and the governor all trying to create consensus around education policy. We're going to have to see how that plays out ultimately. So how does this continued apparent fighting, Ryan, uh, with Patrick using strong words to close the trial and questions about the political future for Phelan play out now? Well, Lakers do still have that special session they have to get through. Yeah, well, it's a good thing we're going into a special session about a topic that everybody agrees about and has never been controversial, <laughs> right? That, of course, is a joke. We're going into a session that uh, Greg Abbott has stressed is going to be about school choice or school vouchers, depending how you want to put it. And that has always been a controversial thing, especially in the House. The Senate, we've seen, has, has passed those measures numerous times easily. Uh, but 
the Senate can't do it alone, and they're going to have to get along with the House. Yeah, what about those Republicans who voted with Democrats in this process? Uh, will that impact the work moving forward? Both of those men are not up for re-election immediately, not until 2026. Right, that's Senator Hancock and Senator Nichols. They're the only two Republicans who ever voted yay on any of the articles of impeachment. They don't have to worry about getting primaried in this upcoming election, which has been a factor. We've seen with House members already getting primaried, including Speaker Phelan after the House voted to impeach, even mm. though that might have been a long time in the making regardless. But the other ones who also didn't have that immediate pressure of, I got to get my seat back, they did not. You mentioned Governor Greg Abbott. Obviously, he has issued a statement after the vote saying it was a fair trial and Paxton has done an outstanding job representing Texas, especially pushing back against the Biden administration. And he looks forward to continuing to work with him to secure the border and protect Texas from federal overreach. Thoughts on that, Will? Largely, Governor Greg Abbott has stayed away from this impeachment trial, not really weighing in one way or the other before this trial took place and really sticking to the issues in that statement that he sent out on this last day of the trial. So that's the next question is, is he going to play peacemaker in a sense between Lieutenant Governor Dan Patrick and House Speaker Dade Phelan while they're trying to create some sort of education policy and a compromise on that? We're still maybe just a little bit too early to tell what will happen uh, coming up maybe in the next two weeks. All right. Well, Ryan, Will, Monica, thank you so much for being here. And thank you for the excellent coverage and keeping Texans informed through this whole process. Thanks for having thank us. Thank you. Coming up, a look at the trial through a legal lens. We talked to a law professor for his perspective on this historic event. And later, lawmakers brace for the next big battle at the Capitol. New insight from three state representatives on the fight over school choice. The impeachment was a political process, but the trial was supposed to follow established legal rules. We want to take a deeper dive into some of the key moments from the trial, and joining us now is Mike Golden, law professor at the University of Texas. Welcome. Thanks for being with us. Thanks for having me. So first off, just a general overview. What stood out in this trial to you? Well, the, the House managers had a, a hefty burden, right? The, the beyond a reasonable doubt burden is a high burden, and there are 16 impeachment counts that were tried, and that is a large collection of evidence. And so I think the first thing that stood out was the House managers struggled a little bit to try to make a coherent story until close to the end. And what about Dan Patrick? He is not a judge, but he presided over the Senate trial. How do you think that he did in that role? It's clear that, that Lieutenant Governor Patrick put in some time to kind of understand the role of a judge in this kind of proceeding, and of course he got some legal help as well. I thought, on balance, he did a very good job of maintaining the impartiality of the tribunal and of making sure that both sides had an actual opportunity to be heard while trying to keep control of the whole proceedings. He has gotten some criticism for those final moments after the vote came in, his final words on the entire proceeding. Uh, did that surprise you a little bit? Yes and no. I mean, it's certainly extremely atypical for a judge to issue those kinds of harsh public comments right at the close of a trial, especially given that they seem to have been prepared. On the flip side, of course, the lieutenant governor is a professional politician, and so in that respect, it did not surprise me. All right, Michael, thank you very much. Thanks for having me. It's the next big battle at the Capitol, whether to allow parents to use public funds to pay for private education. We go in-depth with three lawmakers to get insight into a debate that affects all Texas schoolchildren. 
Plus, a judge's decision could end a program that lets immigrants brought to the country illegally as children stay in the United States. Why it's putting new pressure on Congress to act. Lawmakers in both chambers will likely soon be back at the Capitol to take on unfinished business over school funding. One big battle looming is whether to let parents use public dollars to pay for private schools. Governor Abbott says education savings accounts could give parents more control and help low-income and high-need students. But Democrats and some Republicans argue the idea will ultimately defund public schools. Texas teachers are really raising concerns about a top Republican priority this session, school voucher program. Governor Abbott has been traveling the state pushing for what he calls the parental bill of rights. Send their children to any public school, charter school or private school with state funding following the student. We're not fully funded now, and you're talking about taking more money away. Here with hundreds of other parents, they want to be empowered with the freedom to make the best educational choices for their own children. We all want what's best for our kids, and what's best for our kids is to have access to good quality public education. The governor has said he wants to call lawmakers back at another time to handle the school choice, school vouchers that he had been pushing for all session. We want to take a deeper dive into the issue of using public dollars to pay for private education. Education reporters Kelly Wiley and Nabil Ramadna gathered a panel of parents, educators, and lawmakers. We want to share some of the discussion focusing on the legislators. Their ideas give insight into how the debate could play out at the Capitol. Just real quick, I want to be clear on this. People are like, should we bring school choice to Texas? I might say something here that's going to surprise some folks. We have school choice in Texas. If you're rich, you can send your kid wherever you want to send them. If you're poor, you cannot. And, and I firmly believe that school choice and education freedom is, is the civil rights issue of our time. There is nothing more immoral, unethical, or unfair than to say to a poor student in a poor family who just wants to have a chance at a quality life, and the most important thing to have that is to get a quality education. But to be trapped in one of the, while we have great public schools in Texas, I, as I said before, I'm a proud public school parent myself. My wife and I make the choice to send our kids to our great local public schools. But not every Texan has that choice. As I mentioned, only 24% of Texas eighth graders can read and do math on grade level. And here's the most important thing that I, we always have to go back to. Who should be the person that makes the decision for where, when, and how an individual child is educated? And I believe with all of my heart that it is the parent that at the end of the day, the state of Texas needs to prioritize and support because I've got four children. The idea that all four of them have the same needs and learning aptitudes and an interest as the other are absolutely ridiculous. I choose to send my kids to public schools. I've got public school teachers in my family and I've got public school teachers that I'm good friends with who send their children to private school. There are families where the public school is the perfect solution for two or three of their kids, but for one kid, especially if we're talking about socioeconomic or um, special needs children. They need maybe a slightly different environment where their needs can be tailored and curated to make sure that every child in the state of Texas receives a quality education. May I? Yes, of course. What's important to remember in this conversation is the choice doesn't belong to the parent. 
The choice belongs to the private school. The private school gets to decide under a voucher scheme, under an ESA scheme, whether or not your child fits the bill. Does your child score high enough on a test? Is your child the right religion? Does your child have a disciplinary record? On and on and on. Is your child the right fit for our school? So it's a misnomer to call this parental choice, right? It's the school's choice. It's gimmicky. What I know is parents assume when you talk about parental choice and getting a voucher that they're going to be able to choose whatever school they want to and have money to pay for the tuition when we know lots of the most um, popular private schools charge a tuition that is well out of reach of what the state has contemplated offering in a voucher. Again, it's not the parent's choice. I grew up in a Title I public school. I sent my, kid to a, uh, my kids to Title I schools. So many of our families would, would never be able to take advantage of a voucher or an ESA or even for a charter school for that, for that matter because they do not, um, again, fit the bill for the charter school, right? The charter school gets to choose who those children are. Our public schools, our neighborhood schools, our ISDs are the only schools that take all kids. They are required by our state constitution, different from colleges, right? This is a requirement for our, um, that is fundamental, foundational in this state. And we are not fulfilling that requirement. We are not fulfilling we our public schools. If we could hear Representative Van Dever, I just want to hear your thoughts on this topic as well. You know, we, we hear a lot about parental choice, and, and I think I think we all agree that the parents should be in control of their child's education. And 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 I believe the parent has an opportunity to do that in a public school. Uh, our public schools are independent school districts. We have elected boards that, that govern our, our local schools. And, and so we have the, the opportunity for our parents to be involved in that process. But I will say, I'm open to the conversation of, because I, I do know that we have students who, for whatever reason, maybe does, just can't find the fit. And so I'm open to a conversation, but, but around that conversation, again, to, to some of the, the other comments, does the voucher completely pay for tuition to the private school? I think that should be a requirement, that if a, if a private school is going to take a voucher child, they can't charge additional tuition. Uh, if, the, if the private school takes a voucher child, do they get to choose which voucher children they take? No, they, they should take all vouchers if, if they take any. Uh, they should take the same test public school uh, children take. I, I'm, I'm looking for a level playing field I'm, I'm open to the conversation, but we need to make sure we're not tilting the table in favor of one or the other. That discussion was just one part of our special report, State of Education. In addition to school choice, the panel of lawmakers, parents, and educators took a deep dive into questions of funding and safety in schools. You can see the full discussion online now. Just look for the link in this week's State of Texas story in the Texas Politics section of our website. It's a program that lets immigrants brought to the country illegally as children stay in the United States, but now it's in jeopardy. How a judge's ruling on DACA is putting new pressure on Congress to act.
A judge rejected the Biden administration's effort to save the Deferred Action for Childhood Arrivals program, known as DACA. A federal judge in Texas declared the program illegal. Anna Wernicke has more from Washington. The pressure is building on Congress to take up immigration. On Wednesday, a federal judge in Texas ruled that the DACA program, which protects migrants who were brought to the United States as children from deportation, violates federal law. The ruling notes creating such a program is up to Congress. Our job right here is to find solutions. Illinois Democrat Delia Ramirez says Democrats want reform. People want legal pathways. It is our responsibility to create those legal pathways, and I've told my colleagues before, I'm ready to work with you on that. Passing any immigration bill in Congress is going to be difficult because Republicans will only consider legislation that also includes border security. But Texas Democratic Congresswoman Veronica Escobar says Congress can do both. We have not had immigration reform for 37 years. It is long past time that there is compromise. And Escobar says Wednesday's ruling shows Congress can't wait to act any longer. The only way we're going to fix this is in a bipartisan way and that we get it done quickly. Anna Warnicke for State of Texas. The judge's ruling is ultimately expected to be appealed to the U.S. Supreme Court. In 2020, the high court allowed DACA to stay in place, ruling 5-4 to four that the Trump administration improperly ended the program. Thank you again for joining us for State of Texas. I'm Josh Hinkle, and we'll be back next week to bring you an in-depth look at Texas politics.